Who are we? Are you sure you want to know? We're your friendly neighborhood podcast hosts, Sean and Peter. Welcome to So Much to Tell, a Raimi Spider-Man podcast. This is part two of our mighty mission into the mad mind of one Norman Osborn. There's so much to tell about Norman, specifically so much Sean wanted to tell about Norman, that we had to break it up into two big episodes. Last episode we covered the birth of the Goblin, how he went from being out of Oscorp to firing the board of directors, his objectivist philosophy, religious symbolism, and discussed his being an impressed father figure to Peter and a less than impressed father figure to Harry. Where do we go from here, Sean? Well, let's talk about the offer, which is a number of different scenes, but let's just call it the offer, you know, to make it easier to understand. It's the part of the movie where Norman, he sets out to capture Spider-Man and he starts by going to the Daily Bugle because he knows that's where Spider-Man's pictures are uh, appearing a lot of the time. And so he bursts into Jameson's office, makes that... Jameson, you slime! <laughs> makes that unforgettable... Uh, greeting to him and demands to know where the pictures come from. And Jameson, to his credit, does not reveal that it's Peter Parker who gives them those pictures. Yeah, good on him. And exactly. So Jameson himself uh, isn't as villainous as he appears to be either. Just another businessman trying to make his way in the world however he can. You know, I mean, he's, uh, you know, taking some risks here and there. Like, yeah, you know, some food got poisoned. I got to feel a little nauseous. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but uh, but he definitely has respectable limits. Yeah, exactly. Um so yeah, so the Goblin attacks the Daily Bugle offices. He demands to know from Jameson where he's getting these pictures of Spider-Man so he can then track down Spider-Man. But then Spider-Man himself appears and Jameson is, uh, <laughs> you know, he feels like all of his suspicions have been confirmed and then imme- you know, and immediately says that he knew that Spider-Man and the Goblin had been in cahoots on this. Mm-hmm. And Spider-Man very memorably webs his mouth shut and asks him to let mom and dad talk for a <laughs> while. <laughs> and of course, Norman... Oh, Norman, he responds with the sleeping potion and tells Spider-Man to sleep. Or more accurately, sleep. There you go. Spider-Man is overtaken by the sleeping gas, and Norman then captures him as he's falling from the sky, and they go over to a rooftop somewhere in in New York, and uh, the goblin lays out his life philosophy, really, uh, as we've talked about objectivism. Power is its own pursuit, and offers to have Spider-Man join him. And almost it's almost kind of similar to like, you know, in Star Wars, whenever Darth Vader offers Luke Skywalker to join him and they can rule the galaxy as father and son. That's essentially what Norman is doing with Peter. He's saying like, if you join me, you know, we could have, you know, you, you could have all this power to do whatever you wanted and we could do it together. You know, I think we'd both benefit from this. And Peter, of course, says no, just as Luke Skywalker says no. Yeah, well, it's very much like that. I mean, you said father and son and Norman sees Peter as a son uh, in air. And I know, of course, at this point, Goblin and doesn't know that Spider-Man's Peter, but it's the same principle. And it's also sort of like a business deal here as well. Like Goblin is the quintessential business person villain. Everything he does about the pursuit of power, you know, extreme, you know, it might be fair to say, you know, corrupted version of Randian objectivism. And he, and he sort of puts us forward as a, as a, as a business proposal for Peter. 
you know, and he lays out his personal philosophy that, you know, there's 8 million people in this city and those teeming masses exist for the sole purpose of lifting the few exceptional people onto their shoulders. You know, and that's how he sees people. They're a means to an end. They're, they're just faceless. Like, you know, like a business person. Yeah. They're the people that make me money. They're the people that give me power. Of course, for Peter, those teeming masses are, you know, unfortunately for him, the only reason he exists. He exists to lift up those people mm-hmm. in their time of need, you know, whereas Goblin is a complete opposite. And so I think it's really interesting that, like, he approaches it in the same way that he would approach any other sort of business merger or business decision. Well, the video game tie-in makes that business illusion there very explicit because there's a level in the video game called The Offer. And it's clearly at that part of the movie where Norman is propositioning Peter to join him as an associate. So yeah. again, they're clearly going for that sort of, I'm trying to make a deal with you here. Let, let's uh, let's make a deal. And, and he's got some points. Or at least he makes a good argument during that conversation where he says, in spite of everything you do, eventually they will grow to hate you. And we see that you know, in no small part due to the efforts of the Daily Bugle and it's Oh, bombastic editor, Mr. Jameson, <laughs> to turn the population against Spider-Man. I mean, and I think Norman has a point there that like, no matter how many good things you do for these people of New York, eventually they're either going to lose interest or they're just not going to like you anyway. So what's the point? Why even try? Well, heck, I mean, Norman's experienced that himself with you know, his own board, uh, the funding. Exactly. It's like he spent, I guess his wife even apparently exactly. became a pack of ravening wolves on his trust fund at some point (laughs) so you know he's experienced that and we've seen him experience that so again we see where he's coming from why help anyone except yourself and that's what i mean like it's not a bad argument that like no matter what like eventually they'll they're not going to appreciate you for it so what's the point why try you know it's much easier to look after yourself because you'll never be disappointed like that yeah because i don't know much about ayn rand's philosophy and I hope one of the things I do know is how to pronounce her name correctly. I think I got that. But I do know that her and Uncle Ben would not get along very well at all. Oh, not at all. Because Uncle Ben's whole thing is if you have the power, you have to help people. You are duty bound to assist others who need it. And Ayn Rand is absolutely not about that. You know, why bother? You're your own end in yourself. Focus on yourself. If you want to help others, I guess you could, but there's no there's no benefit unless you want to. And we see in the movie for Peter, there is absolutely no benefit to him for it. He's the only one that doesn't benefit from his powers. You know, whereas everything Norman does is for his own benefit. Peter doesn't get anything out of it. So really it would be very easy for Peter to fall into that because he does suffer so much from it. His self-sacrifice. Well, that whole idea is certainly, it certainly comes back in the other two movies of Peter, you know, it definitely hurts him inside that he's not appreciated by the people of New York for all of his effort. I think that certainly is something that eats away at him for a while. And then we see in the third movie how when that goes too far the other way, how that's not good for him either. But there's definitely people that are appreciative of his efforts, but there's a lot who aren't. And it certainly doesn't help whenever, like, you have the newspapers that are against you, and you also have the police department that's against you. Yeah. Those are two, you know, key constituencies in New York right there. So, like, even if you do have a good number of fans already, there's still some pretty powerful forces that are lined up against you, and that has to hurt. That has to really make you question what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, and to Peter's credit, he stands against it really well in the first one. But, yeah, it definitely eats at him progressively through the series. And Norman, just for his part, he, he bypasses that and says, whatever I do, it's only for me. It's only for my benefit. So to heck with everybody else. You know, if, if people have to die or whatever, that's that's unfortunate, but so be it. <laughs> it's also sort of interesting, too, 
Norman has all of these reasons, and really all Peter can offer for his reasoning is because it's right, which is interesting. You know, Peter clings to this sort of like base truth and reason that this is what it is, and helping other people is right, which is, you know, in some sense, that's an objectivist sort of thing, that there is one way, you know, A is A, this is what it is, you know, into Peter's reasoning, this is right. Of course, to Norman's, it's pathetically predictable. But, you know, Norman has like a big spiel to give backing him up. And Peter could almost seem a little tenuous in some ways. You know, he doesn't have a lot to back him up necessarily. Of course, he's also been drugged. So there's that. <laughs> but, um, well, Peter is clearly not like a nihilist or anybody else that thinks there's nothing objective. And I know this is confusing with the term objectivism, but I think you know, what Peter seems to subscribe to is a view that there is objective morality in the sense that there are things that are inherently good and inherently evil mm-hmm. in the universe. And a lot of people would say, well, that, you know, that's because that's what, you know, God, for example, is who decides what is objectively good and evil, wherever, the, whatever the source is. Mm-hmm. Peter seems to subscribe to this idea that there are things that are always good and things that are always evil. And in his worldview, you have to choose the side of what is always good. Yeah. And I will say, this is a conversation for another episode, but this does come back to bite Peter in Spider-Man 3. Exactly. The idea that people are either good or evil. So, Peter definitely has a lot to learn yet. Well, that's what I mean. He sees the world in a very black and white way. You know, there's... Which objectivists do. And that's what's interesting. There's definitely some objectivist qualities to Peter. Like, you know, when he says, I want to earn what I make myself. You know, Norman respects that. That's definitely coming out at like a self-made man sort of perspective. Exactly. So there are some elements of him that appeal to Norman. And Norman wants to try to bend Peter the rest of the way to his side. Oh, exactly. There's definitely a lot of moments in this movie where Peter could have made a choice. And a lot of this is about choice. You know, again, Goblin says that line, we are who we choose to be. This is all about choice. And Peter, sometimes he makes the very wrong choice. And we saw that when he could have stopped the robber, but he didn't. And as a result, his uncle was murdered. But later on in that movie, he makes the right decision. Yeah. So, you know, so you have the rooftop offer there between the Green Goblin and Spider-Man where, you know, the Green Goblin uh, propositions him to join him in this destructive effort. You know, there's no there's no denying that the, the regular forces of society would have a hard time standing up to the combined forces of the Green Goblin and Spider-Man. They're exceptional. And Spider-Man, I don't think he mulls over the offer seriously at all. No, no. And the next time we see them together is at a house fire. Spider-Man, you know, saves a young baby from a house fire, and then he goes back in when he sees or when he hears what seems to be an old woman screaming in terror as the slowly encroaching flames threaten to overwhelm her. Spider-Man goes back into the building because, again, it's right, as he would think it. Yeah. And he goes back in to try to save this woman, and he sees what appears to be an old woman in a shawl screaming hysterically at the raging inferno. And it turns out to be the Green Goblin playing a little bit of a trick on him. (laughs) And... This is one of my favorite quotes of the movie. I've always loved it because it's just so awkwardly brilliant. <laughs> Spider-Man finds out that it's the goblin and the goblin says, what about my generous proposal? Are you in or are you out? And all the while, he knows that Spider-Man has decided against it and he's clutching a pumpkin bomb that is clearly primed to explode in a few seconds here. Spider-Man provides the most brilliant response that I've ever heard. It's you who's out, Gobby. <laughs> out of your mind. And... And again, and this is an example of Spider-Man being pathetically predictable to him, but Goblin was clearly prepared. And so he says, wrong answer, and then, you know, throws this pumpkin bomb at him. Well, and then just to just to dwell on that that exchange for a moment, sure. that's a great point that you make that, you know, as pathetically predictable as Peter is, you know, Norman A finds a way to draw him out. Like he knows he's going to be there trying to mm-hmm. do something that he thinks is right for other people. 
And B, he has the strong suspicion that Peter is not going to go for it. And so he's primed and ready to blow him out of the sky, blow the competition. And again, he poses it as a generous business proposal. And then, of course, Peter... What about my generous proposal? (laughs) And then Peter doesn't quite realize what he's doing, but he accidentally taps into, kind of hits a nerve for Norman, where he says, it's you who's out. You know, being the second person Mm -hmm. in this movie to tell Norman he's out of something. And we know that never sits well with Mm -hmm. old Normie. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you were saying. So, yes, Spider-Man and the Goblin engage in a little bit of uh, hand-to-hand combat in the burning building here. Perhaps it's meant to symbolize the raging fire inside of Peter for what kind of the raging battle, I should say, inside of himself over what kind of person he wants to be. Hmm. But at least at this point, he has made the right choice. Interesting. I don't know. I don't know if that's there's too much to that or not, but certainly. Hey, it is if we say it is. (laughs) That's what interpretation is all about. And again, it it shows you that the Green Goblin is clearly better at hand to hand combat. And he pretty well dominates Spider-Man during their brief little fight here. He tries to finish him off with some razor bats, these little drone-like things that have these really sharp wings. And notably, and this is a key plot point, notably Spider-Man is cut on his left arm with one of those things. Clearly not like a fatal wound, but certainly it's pretty bad. And Spider-Man leaves that fight. And evidently it's Thanksgiving Day, you know, when this fire happens. And do you think that Norman set that fire intentionally, like to try to entrap Spider-Man? Like, because how, how, how else would, would he, he know? be there? Is yeah. he just cruising around the city looking for a fire? That's what I mean. Like, is he like Peter where he listens to the police scanner to try to find emergencies? Doubtful. Yeah, I got to think he probably said it. That's a good point. But you have to imagine in a city like New York, there's a lot of fires on any given day. And what makes you think that Spider-Man would come to any of them? Like a moth to the flame. Well, I mean, for all we know, Norman's been setting fire after fire throughout the city, just waiting for Peter to show up to one of them. So in addition to being a bomber, he's also an arsonist, most likely. I'm calling it. Yeah, I think you're right. Which furthermore underscores, like you mentioned earlier, that he's meant to represent the devil. Yeah. Well, you know, what do we think about when we think of the devil? We think of hell, flames. Good point. And certainly if he's lighting fires. They that's, do sort uh, of meet in this inferno setting. And then even at the end of the scene, stylistically, the fire sort of like, you know, overwhelms the goblin and the screen, and then transitions him from that scene to the Thanksgiving scene. Just goes to show you that, you know, how little regard he has for the, quote, teeming masses, because you think about it, you know, this fire clearly took place on, like, Thanksgiving Day, which is already a very crazy day for New York City when they have that massive, you know, Macy's Thanksgiving parade. (laughs) Norman clearly didn't care that this was going on and would be tying up Mm -hmm. the New York Fire Department and Police Department. Yeah, I guess he couldn't care less about Thanksgiving. How dastardly is the Goblin? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, the more you think about it, this is premeditated on the part of the Goblin to trick Spider-Man into responding to a fire on a holiday where the emergency services are going to be tied up with the Thanksgiving parade. But now the real question now is, do you think he picked up the fruitcake before or after he set the fire? Good question. Probably after. I mean, he could have set the fire and let it stoke for a little while and then ran out to get the fruitcake while the fire was sort of building and then came back in time for Spider-Man to show up. Potentially, because he's got to wait for the fire to spread a little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly this fire was very devastating. It was it was bad enough that the fire department didn't even appear to be going into the building anymore. Right. And so they have that little that little meeting in the in the burning building. And next we see them is at Thanksgiving dinner. And we see Norman coming up in the elevator and he's clearly still a little bit out of it from his fight with Spider-Man. He's clearly trying to regain his composure before going into dinner here. And he he makes a, a very witty, albeit ominous comment when he comes in by saying work was murder. And as a matter of fact, I mean, that sort of would be reinforced if indeed he set that fire intentionally. The movie doesn't tell us, but there very well could have been fatalities in that fire. 
Hmm. I mean, for all we know, there could have been an old woman in there that he murdered and then pretended to be her just to, so that the other people outside wouldn't be uh, thrown off by it. I don't know. I wouldn't put it past him. I really wouldn't. No, I wouldn't put it past Norman. Storm and Norman. Storm and Norman, which, by the way, is another military reference because Storm and Norman was the name of or the nickname of General Norman Schwarzkopf, who was the leader of the U.S. forces during Desert Storm in uh, 1991. So yet another allusion to his connection. Yeah, that one I knew. Well, that's not entirely true. I knew it was something had to do with the military, but I'm sorry, another illusion. Well, just another illusion to the deep involvement between the military and this technology and this human performance enhancer that have really turned uh, Norman Osborn's life upside down. Yeah. And unleashed these very destructive forces that were always kind of brewing within him. Yeah. Well, so then we return to the the greatest Thanksgiving scene in all of cinema. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And... You know, Norman shows up. He seems to regain his composure a little bit. He makes some small talk with everybody. He finally meets Mary Jane for the first time as Norman, because we, mm. we glossed over that, but he he does see her at the Unity Day Festival, but she doesn't know that it's Norman at that point. So she finally meets him as Norman, as Harry's father for the first time. And everything seems to be going okay at first. If you know, it, it seems a little bit awkward, but you know, first meetings with your significant other's parents usually are. There's always going to be a little bit of awkwardness. Well, Maybe a little more than awkwardness, though. I mean, there. Norman holds a, a gaze of Mary Jane for slightly longer than one would expect. There's more than a hint of licentiousness with Norman. True. MJ. Yeah, that's that's true. That is you know, coming true. off of his whole hello, my dear earlier. That's and true. We don't know much about Norman's wife, but when you see the picture of her, I mean, I presume that's his wife uh, in the portrait. I think she is a. You know, redheaded woman in a in a black dress. So I don't know if there's some sort of uh, you know connection there. That's very i I think that's very possible that he's probably looking at her and seeing like a younger version of his wife, and is clearly interested in her in a very untoward way. Yeah, I think we can definitely say that. Yeah. So, so but yeah. He, in other words, you know, just your average awkward Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> with the family. And and Peter is also running late and. We see him enter a few moments later, just as dinner is about to be served. So they sit down to dinner, and Norman sits at the head of the table as, again, the symbolic father of the family. Mm, and Aunt yeah. May asks him to carve the turkey, as you do the father at, at Thanksgiving dinner. Very Norman Rockwell. Yeah, I was going to say, well, Norman Rockwell. Interesting. Norman Osborne Rockwell. <laughs> and, of course, we all know that famous painting of Thanksgiving dinner from Norman Rockwell. And, you know, Aunt May gives him the knife and the carving fork to start slicing the turkey. Only after she slaps his hand as he's about to take a little bite of stuffing before they say grace. And, oh, you can see the seething anger and humiliation in his eyes there as he is aghast that Aunt May would chastise him so publicly. Mm -hmm. And he looks at her with this so much evil. But Aunt May doesn't know that. She still sees him as just Mr. Osborne, you know, the father of Peter's best friend. So she has no idea what's bubbling under the surface there. But we do. We, the audience, know very well what he's thinking in that moment. I think he's he's just holding it back. I don't know if he's trying to hold the goblin back in that moment. I don't know what's going on. It's it's very scary. I it's, mean, he could snap at any moment, it looks like. It does. It's very uncomfortable, especially when he's sharpening the knife. He's sharpening it. Yeah. And you don't know if he's going to stab Aunt May or if he's going to stab the turkey. It's interesting to note, too, just, you know, we talked about his whole, you know, why he would never have a come to Jesus moment. And that's sort of apparent here, even in this small little scene. I mean, he, he wants... A piece of turkey, and he's going to take it because 
why not? You know, he's he deserves it. He wants it. He should take it. Whereas Aunt May, you know, there's something else out there that matters for her first. You know, we're going to do this together as a family. We're going to pray first. You know, there's there's more considerations to her beyond herself. That's but true. But Norman, Norman is God to himself. <laughs> why would he pray? Why would he wait for anyone else? Exactly. And well, you know, Aunt May says, like, this is the first Thanksgiving in this apartment and we are going to do things properly. Right. And she says it like with an air of like this stern but loving kind of grandmother or maternal figure that is going to make sure that her family does it the right way, that mm-hmm. she's looking out for their moral fiber. Yeah. You know, we're going to we're not going to eat until we've given thanks to the almighty for bestowing this generous bounty upon us. Mm-hmm. Whereas Norman, pff, no, who cares? Like, let's just eat. You know, what are we waiting for? It doesn't matter. Right. Another great little, you know, character moment right there, you know, between the two of them. For what it's worth, Norman doesn't let Aunt May's little hand touch stop him because even after she reproaches him he still eats the stuffing right he still eats it and he eats it with this smirk of devilish glee yeah i mean he clearly enjoys the fact that he's going against this proper way of doing things quote unquote and i have to wonder how that scene would have played out if he hadn't noticed what he notices a moment later or what what aunt exactly. may notices oh yeah so aunt may notices that peter's arm seems to be bleeding and sure enough she rolls up his sleeve And there's this giant, nasty-looking gash that's just oozing bright red blood. And, of course, Aunt May is concerned and asks Peter where he got this wound. And Peter responds that, oh, it was a bike messenger. You know, they clipped me. Knocked me down. Knocked me down when I was getting these, uh, this can of cranberry sauce. And so Norman being, he must have been very observant during that fight because he must have seen where the razor bat grazed Spider-Man's left arm. Yeah. And, oh, how how could I forget? Like, there's the part where they go up into Peter's bedroom looking for him, and Norman s- smells the fresh blood, or he hears it and smells it. You can see his nose kind of uh, jiggle up and down a little bit as he smells this fresh blood. So he knows. He, like, Notably, something inside he of doesn't it... hear Peter skittering across his ceiling and then leaping no. out underneath the balcony, <laughs> which, incidentally, is a nod to issue number 14 of um, Amazing Spider-Man, uh, his first appearance, hmm. uh, I think, anyway. Did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah, on the cover, you know, the goblin's there, and Peter's, like, hanging upside down from the ceiling in a very similar way to what you see him do in that moment. So, neat little nod to the first appearance of the goblin. Hmm. That's interesting. I never knew that. Yeah, so we have the it's first almost like a, It's, it's almost of kind hints. of shark-like. I, I, I just want to say that it's almost kind of shark-like in the way that he just... Yeah. He smells that blood, and he's just immediately... Very predatory. Like, his, something is aroused in him. Like, he smells that blood and immediately starts yeah. scanning and searching for... Yeah, like you said, his prey. It's very predatory. And interestingly, we've already seen now the Goblin has become disenchanted with Spider-Man. You know, he's kind of given up on him at this point. And we see this moment, too, where Norman is also kind of disappointed in Peter. He's like a bit of a slob, isn't he? That's true. So at the same time that Spider-Man is falling out of favor with the Goblin, Peter also happens to be falling out of favor with Norman. And maybe that's part of why he's so suspicious. You know, he's starting to feel like maybe Peter isn't everything he believed he was. And so he is a little bit on edge. Hmm. And it really stands out to him when Peter is more suspicious. He does seem a bit taken aback by the mess in Peter's bedroom there. Yeah. But Aunt May famously says, well, all brilliant men are slobs. Uh, She's the best. Yeah. (laughs) Don't let the mess distract your take away from who he really is, which is that he's yeah, a genius. Don't judge, don't judge a book by its disgusting mess it leaves. Exactly, in its room. exactly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that quote for me has justified many mess in your room over <laughs> the years, uh, including our shared messy room in, in college. Exactly, uh, yes, yes. I think we appealed to Aunt May's wisdom on that front a number of times. 
I mean, not to be <laughs> fair. I well, to be fair to Peter, like a messy room really. I mean, yeah, it's annoying, but come on. Like, I don't, if, if you're trying to curry favor with somebody as, as like a father son sort of relationship, I don't think a messy room is necessarily a deal breaker, but for Norman, maybe it is. Maybe yeah. he sees it as part of this larger worldview. I don't know. Apparently so. So, anyway, back to dinner. Yeah. So we get back to dinner, and Norman notices the wound, and he immediately makes the connection that that is the exact same arm that was wounded in my fight with Spider Man. And Norman puts two and two together and just abruptly gets up and leaves dinner. And Harry is understandably upset about this. And Harry notes that he set up Thanksgiving dinner explicitly as a vehicle for Norman to meet his girlfriend, Mary Jane. Yeah, and Harry and MJ went the extra mile on this one, too, because back at the Unity Day Festival, he's disappointed that MJ didn't wear the the black dress to impress his father. And, you know, come Thanksgiving, she does wear the black dress to try to impress Norman. You're right. Enjoy the fruitcake. (laughs) So Norman immediately gets up to leave and Harry follows him into the hallway as Norman is bolting for the elevator and they have a very tense, heated conversation. And Norman more or less gives Harry his assessment of Mary Jane, which is that, yeah, she's pretty, but uh, she's really only with you because of your money. So do you know, make good use of her and then discard her because otherwise, you know, you're just going to harm yourself, which again, lines up very well with his uh, whole philosophy on life. Using people. Yeah. yeah. Use people and then dump them. You know, if they're not if they're not of use to you, what's the point? Why, you know, extend yourself for them? Yeah. Of course, the door is open and they're having a very loud conversation. So everybody in the apartment overhears this. And Mary Jane is, you know, understandably, again, upset that Harry didn't defend her. And interestingly, interestingly, Harry chooses his father over Mary Jane. Yeah. And gets mad at Mary Jane for criticizing his father. It means that much to him. Yeah. Yeah. Even though even though Harry clearly is not all that close to his father, he still chooses his father over Mary Jane. He wants to be. Yeah, he wants to be close to Norman. And in some ways, as much as he loves MJ, I do believe that he really cares for MJ, you know, um, yeah. certainly more than Flash Thompson did. Sure. But, uh, you know, in some ways, you know, everything Harry does is a means to try to impress his father, to win his father's love. And, you know, and that's part of what fuels his obsession in Spider-Man 2 up to his twisted worldview by the time of Spider-Man 3 into becoming another goblin to try to impress his father in some ways to avenge his father's honor. Yeah. But even here we see that he's sort of using MJ as a, as a tool to impress his father. Absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, you're right. I think he does care for Mary Jane as a girlfriend, but certainly I think he's also using her with ulterior motives of trying to get into his father's good graces by essentially dating a, well, I guess almost like a doppelganger of his mother and Norman's wife. So possibly there might be something to that. Yeah. Your mother was beautiful, too. They're all beautiful until they're snarling after your trust fund like a pack of ravening wolves. Almost like an Oedipus complex or something with Harry. Like, I mean, he's dating somebody who clearly resembles his mother. So. Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. I, I mean, mean that's I think a... there's something to that. I don't know if we need to dig too deeply no, into Harry's I mean. psyche I don't, I... with the Oedipal thing. But there's definitely something there with the goblin, though, I think, between some sort of weird connection between MJ and his wife. Well, at the end of the day, this all is an outgrowth of very... Very bad family dynamics in the Osborne household. There was not mm-hmm. a lot of love shown between Norman and his wife, between Norman and Harry, and as a result, a lot of people suffer. That's what this all yeah. comes down to. It comes down to a very difficult household for the Osbournes. No doubt. And so anyway, um, Mary Jane storms out after Harry's abject failure to stand up and defend her honor, and Harry shouts at her, which Harry is- Harry Osborne. Which really upsets Aunt May that, you know, that he could yell at her for something like that. And Thanksgiving dinner is ruined, as so many of them are every single year for very similar reasons. 
I mean, let's face it. Thanksgiving dinner can be awkward under the best of circumstances. And no doubt this was an extremely poor set of circumstances to have a Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) So anyway, next time we see Norman, he's at his mansion again. He's doubled over crying because he knows what he has to do to defeat Spider-Man. But the good side of him, to the extent that there was a good side of him, is trying like hell to hold on to what's left of that because the goblin is telling him, and this is clearly some sort of conversation in his own mind, the goblin is telling him that he has to go after the heart, Peter's family, you know, his family and friends, the people he loves, the old method that is in Sun Tzu's Art of War, you know, or as the goblin puts it, the cunning warrior attacks neither body nor mind. And as we see Norman, he's again, he's hunched over, he's crying, he's upset. We actually see him very conflicted about what he has to do because he keeps saying, I can't. Like, I can't, I can't yeah, do this. perhaps at his lowest. That is perhaps his weakest, most vulnerable, most, like you said, conflicted here. Yeah, He's very conflicted about what he has to do. He knows what he has to do, but he doesn't know if he has the strength to do it. As <laughs> Exactly. That was as it was put by another morally ambiguous character in another franchise, Kylo Ren. Because mm-hmm. there is definitely, like you said, a part of him, the good part of him, insofar as there ever was one, doesn't want to have to kill Peter. He still sees Peter as sort of a son figure to him. He's conflicted, but ultimately... But ultimately, he gives in to the goblin. Ultimately, he figures out he what he has to, to do. give in to the goblin. He does. He chooses. And next thing we see is uh, Aunt May praying the Lord's Prayer. And again, this goes back to that devilish... Devilish motif. In the devil incarnate sort of uh, interpretation of the Green Goblin. And just as Aunt May is finishing up the Lord's Prayer over Uncle Ben's picture, you know, she's about to say, deliver us from evil. The Green Goblin makes another fiery entrance, destroys her wall, and obviously could hear what kind of prayer she was saying because he demands that she finish the prayer. Finish it. Finish it. And you know, just crying out of the sheer terror of what she's experiencing, Aunt May just sobs and says, from evil. <laughs> just like that. That was a spot on Rosemary Harris, Sean. From evil. <laughs> <laughs> but again, a fascinating moment where, again, there's no higher power than himself and he seeks to prove that in this moment you know you're you're bothering to pray to to god to protect you from evil well let's see him stop me you know so he's defying god himself in this moment mm-hmm. that there's nothing greater than me mm-hmm. so that's some pretty intense stuff exactly it's all, you're right because <laughs> she's saying deliver us from evil and then you're right on cue evil incarnate smashes through her window and mocks her for saying that he mocks her for making that prayer for making that plea to god because he's evil and he's right there and so obviously aunt may was not delivered from evil as far as he can see it yeah and the next thing we cut to is the hospital where uh aunt may is recovering from that horrific attack and all she can say is oh sorry those eyes (laughs) yeah like those eyes those horrible yellow eyes and peter has his little epiphany and realizes the goblin knows who I am. My friends and family aren't safe. He's going to attack them to get to me. And yet Peter still hasn't put it together yet. We had a really awkward, you know, Norman ducked out all of a sudden, apparently because of the scratch on Peter's arm. And Peter doesn't quite put it together yet at all. Yeah, you're right. He doesn't know that it's Mr. Osborne at this point. But what he does know is bad enough. And that's the Green Goblin is aware of his alter ego and is coming after his friends and family one by one to try to get to him. And that has to be horrifying. That realization must have just made him sick to his stomach. Well, no doubt. And it's part of what will help Peter realize later that no matter what he does, it's always going to be the one he loves that get hurt. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, later on, that's what pushes him away from Mary Jane. Yeah. 
So Peter's at the hospital with Aunt May as she's recovering from the goblin's attack. And Aunt May makes a very pointed observation that everybody knows how you feel about Mary Jane. Mm. Meaning that everybody knows that you have a big crush on her, which Norman found out himself through a conversation with Harry, where Harry revealed that Peter had been in love with Mary Jane since the fourth grade. Yeah, there's no one Peter cares for more. Exactly. It was pretty well known and had been so for years. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we deserve to talk a little bit about um, the interesting exchange that Harry and Norman have. Yes, yeah, I did kind of gloss over that a little bit. That is an interesting conversation. Yeah, like for the first time in this movie, Norman treats his son like a son. You're, you're right, because that's really the first heartfelt conversation they have in those movies. And that conversation itself happens because Peter and Mary Jane are together at the hospital, and Peter goes on that very notable soliloquy to Mary Jane about what his love for her does to him. And Harry walks in there as Peter and Mary Jane are holding hands. And Harry, understandably, is a little bit let down by that. He's a little upset that his girlfriend is having a pretty significant moment with his best friend. Any guy in that situation would be, would be understandably upset. You feel for him. Again, like you said, there's a lot of sympathy for people in this movie. Exactly. You kind of understand why Harry's a little bit upset about that. Harry doesn't let that go, by the way. He does not let that go. That is a yet another reason for him to have this anger for the next two movies. But yeah. anyway, he's a little bit crestfallen after seeing Peter and Mary Jane have that moment in the hospital. And so he's talking to Norman about it. We see them, you're right, we see them have the first... For the first time in this movie, they have a very heartfelt conversation where Norman actually admits that he was not a good father. He actually tells Harry, I should have been there for you, but I wasn't, and I'm sorry. I, I, let, I let you down. As a father, I have failed you. And that's pretty significant. That's a significant thing for anybody to say, let alone somebody as narcissistic and you know, psychopathic as the Green Goblin. However, yeah, like good on Norman, on the one hand, for you know, finally treating his son like a son. And like, you can see how that impacts Harry. And of course that leaves a lasting impression, you know, once his father's dead, you know, that being their last exchange, not only did he lose a lot, you know, did he lose a chance of ever connecting with his father, but they were just starting to get somewhere when he's stolen from him. However, from Norman's perspective, that's, I think that's gotta be mainly because he had two sons. One of them betrayed him. And mm -hmm. so, you know, then the only one that was quote unquote still loyal to him then became the favored son. Mm -hmm. You know, in that moment with Peter gone as his son, all he has is Harry and he's seeing Harry in this new light and appreciating his loyalty more than he did before. So there's definitely a darker aspect to it. Oh, absolutely. But it is interesting to see him, you know, approaching him in this fatherly way, you know, and he's going to rectify certain iniquities. So in a sense... Maybe part of what he's doing to go kill Spider-Man is for Harry. Might be a bit of a stretch. Maybe that's just what he's telling himself. I don't know. I think that's more likely. I think it's that he's just trying to justify it in his own mind. He's trying to rationalize it by saying that, oh, I'm just getting revenge for you know what happened between Mary Jane and Peter. But certainly, in any event, it's extreme for him to try to murder her just because Harry's feelings were a little bit hurt. It's a little extreme, yeah. It's a little extreme. It's kind of... Yeah, uh, I gotta agree. A bit extreme. <laughs> So yeah, that's an interesting conversation that Harry and Norman have. And Harry, you know, he tries to make Norman feel better by saying, oh, well, you're a busy man. You're very important. I understand why you weren't really around that much. And Norman, you know, again says, well, that's no excuse. I should have been there for you as a father. I wasn't, but I'm going to do better now. I'm going to, as you said, rectify certain inequities. And boy, does he ever, or at least does he ever try. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, it's during that conversation where Harry reveals the depth of Peter's devotion to Mary Jane, that Peter's loved her for years. 
you know, and it's at that moment that he realizes that she needs to be the next target. Yeah. And then Peter puts two and two together when Aunt May makes that observation to him. And he realizes that, oh, no, Mary Jane's probably next. And he runs out to try to call her on the payphone, which is a very 2002 uh, sort of thing to happen, by the way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And he gets her answering machine and he he's begging her to call him immediately. And then the Green Goblin cuts in and says, can Spider-Man come out to play? (laughs) Again, that was that was a pretty good Willem Dafoe right there, Sean. Well, he just, spot on. it's almost just hilarious how, how, I don't know, it's like he's taunting him, but it like is. in such an over-the-top way. Can Spider-Man come out to he play? He says it in such a notable way, yeah. But, while we're on the subject of coming out to play, and before we commence with discussing Spidey and Gobby's final confrontation, it's time to play Brilliant or Lazy. Okay. Perhaps I'll... Yeah, you I'll can kick go. it off here, Sean. Yep, you go first this time. All right. Regarding Oscorp's procedure for the human performance enhancers, what is the Promachlor Parazine for? Would you like multiple choice? I believe it increases the rate of absorption. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you multiple choice. That's okay. What I'm gonna do. Okay. A, B, C, and D. A. It fundamentally alters the DNA. B. It reverses the polarity of the neutron flow. C. It begins catalyzation when the vapor hits the bloodstream. Oh, D, it isolates recombinant DNA to activate. Oh, it's definitely definitely C. It's definitely C. Yeah, it's C. You got it. Yeah, you were you were close. You were close with your guess. I mean, you practically had it, but I was going for exactness. That's so fair. well done. Brilliant. Well, well, we'll give me half credit. We'll say half brilliant. So average. <laughs> I think I think Dr. Connors would pass you. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> okay, Peter. Here's your question. Oh boy. Name all of the weapons that Green Goblin uses during the movie, aside from hand-to-hand combat. And just to clarify, I am not counting the glider as a sole weapon. In other words, I'm looking for weapons that were part of the glider, some weapons that were not part of the glider. I'm looking for you to name all of the weapons that we see him use during the course of the movie. Jeez Louise. Okay. Well, let's see here now. Can I get multiple choice? I I <laughs> don't think I can give you multiple choice. <laughs> I'm just I wouldn't think so. Okay. Well, we got to start with my favorite, uh, the Trident. Okay, that you, that's uh, one. The Trident he pulls from somewhere. Um, <laughs> the uh, the sleeping gas. Mm-hmm. Sleep. Okay. Love that. Okay. I was hoping you would say that one. That's my. I, I love that line. <laughs> <laughs> I love it too. Um, there's like the the like the bayonet sort of knives that shoot out from it. Okay, that's three. Uh, you're you're doing gun. good here. You're you're you are hitting them all. Like, good job. Well, Keep you going. Know, I'm something of a Spider-Man fan myself. I have seen these movies a couple of times. <laughs> um, the machine gun. Got that. Uh, you are. Yep. I. You are four for six. There's two more that I have on my list. So if you get both of these, you'll be brilliant. Well, I mean, I guess I guess there are two different things. I got we got pumpkin bombs. We got razor bats. You got it. All, you got all six. Congratulations. Woo. Brilliant. We're both wow. brilliant this round. Like, I, I mean, I hope I'm not forgetting one, but that, those are the six that I could think of. That's all that comes to my mind. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to learn there was more up his sleeve, but I think that's all we see. So, yeah, I'm going to say we did it. I'm going to say we got it. I was hoping that I would trip you up with the uh, trident because it, it like he pulls out the trident right before we see the bayonet. And I was hoping that would uh, I was hoping I, I nope, would trick you there, nope, but I didn't I know. I love that trident. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Good job. You got all six of them. All right. 
Well, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. All right, good on us. Back to where we were. Uh, <laughs> Norman had just called Spider-Man out to play. So next thing we cut to is uh, Spider-Man meeting Norman on, I think it's the Queensboro Bridge. I think you're right. Spider-Man swings to the bridge and sees Norman holding Mary Jane in one hand and the cable of a tramway in the other, on which is a cable car full of uh, little children on a field trip to somewhere, I believe Roosevelt Island. A pretty late field trip, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, because it's like in the middle of the night, because Mary Jane's in her pajamas. So <laughs> yeah. you're right. You have to wonder why is a group of school children out on a field trip in the middle of the night? But yeah, I guess it's an overnight field trip, I guess. I suppose. But <laughs> um, so Peter gets there and he says, this is why you shouldn't be a hero, because at some point, some sadistic lunatic is going to come along and force you to make a decision where no matter what you do, somebody dies. And I am that lunatic right now, and I am forcing you to make that decision. What's it going to be, Spider-Man? Let die the woman you love or suffer the little children, which that is another biblical reference to uh, the New Testament, one of the Gospels. Mm -hmm. So again, underscoring this idea that the goblin is representing a biblical sort of evil, uh, the devil incarnate. Yeah. So Peter says, don't do it, goblin. And the goblin comes back at him with that famous line. We are who we choose to be. Now choose! Yeah, again, a very objectivist sort of thing. It is. It is. And Spider-Man tries to have the best of both worlds, and he somehow manages it, barely by the skin of his teeth. Which is Peter's whole MO. I mean, that's that's all he can do. He, he balances everything only to the detriment of, him, of himself. Yeah, because he's, he's quite literally caught in the middle there. He's yeah. bridging the gap between this, this very heavy cable car and Mary Jane. He's trying to hold them both up while they're waiting for the barge, this, this fortuitously placed barge, to come underneath them to catch them. Right. And notably, he can't do it alone. You know, everyone needs help sometimes, even Spider-Man. He relies on the altruism of others. You're right. You're, that's a really good point, because if not for that barge, I mean, at least one of those two things, you know, Mary Jane or the, the school children would have been harmed if not killed. So certainly you're right without the, I feel like, you know, the barge operator doesn't get enough praise. Yeah. Well, between the barge and the people on the bridge, Norman sees his ideologies come into conflict with altruism from Peter and the good people of New York. It's a moment that sort of shows, well, maybe Norman, uh, <laughs> wasn't quite right about what real power is. It, you know, it, it kind of calls back in a way to the earlier conversation where Norman says that the people of New York will eventually hate you. Well, this is the people of New York literally coming together to save Spider-Man, to help him in the most important and significant way. They are coming together to intervene on his side during this battle with the Green Goblin. So, like, they are absolutely showing their appreciation for him by helping him out. Yeah. So it's another way that, that the people of New York sort of refute at least temporarily, they refute the Green Goblin's whole uh, worldview. Yeah. Uh, so so luckily, the barge is able to come underneath the cable car there, and Spider-Man can set it down. It. He's got to make it. But only because of the intervention of the people of New York on the bridge, they begin to bombard the Goblin with rocks and debris from the bridge. They just begin to pelt him with whatever they have on hand. And that's enough. That's just enough. It's just enough to turn the tide of the battle and give Peter a little more time to make sure... They can, he can get the other people to safety before taking on Goblin himself. Mm -hmm. And everybody's cheering that you know the Goblin's scheme has been foiled until he flies into Spider-Man, and by sheer force, they fly to this abandoned building for their climactic mono e mono showdown. Just as an interesting bit of trivia, uh, Roosevelt Island, a strip of land between Manhattan and Queens, holds upon it a rotting corpse of a building the remains of a pre-Civil War smallpox hospital, huh. the perfect setting for the fateful encounter, the production called Spidey and Goblin Square Off. Interesting. 
so yes, they end up in this abandoned smallpox hospital, <laughs> and as we as we've seen before, the goblin is devastatingly effective at hand to hand combat. Yeah, he just he just mops the floor with Peter. I mean, Peter cannot get a punch in edgewise. <laughs> he is just being overwhelmed in every possible way. And we see Spider-Man, he's flung through brick walls, he just takes a lot of abuse, his suit is damaged, it's ripped, his face is poking out. I mean, you can see his, you can clearly see Peter Parker's face there, which I feel like is almost symbolic too in that this is not just the Spider-Man versus Goblin anymore, this is now Norman Osborn versus Peter Parker and Spider-Man versus Goblin. That's a great point. It's all merging into one. So, it's all on the table at this point. Yeah. Between Norman slash Goblin versus Peter Hmm. slash Spider-Man. And... For the longest time, Norman has the upper hand. He just completely dominates the fight. And misery, misery, misery. That's what you that's you've what chosen. You've chosen. And it looks like he has Peter on the ropes. It looks like he's about to land that knockout punch. But as a lot of villains are wont to do, he starts monologuing. Exactly. He begins to gloat and he begins to tell Spider-Man all of the wonderfully evil things he plans to do. <laughs> and of course, the one thing that sets off Spider-Man is he tells Spider-Man, you know. If you didn't intervene, Mary Jane's death would have been quick and painless. But now I'm going to torture her nice and slow. Yeah, crap. And then he pulls out the trident and says, MJ and I, we're going to have a hell of a time. At this point, for no good reason, really. Because once Peter's dead, that's all he really cared about. Yeah. But uh, at this point, he's just being evil for the sake of being evil. He's going whole hog on this whole evil thing. And not only that, but it's interesting in that, like we mentioned, that the, that it's merging into one, that it's not the alter egos, it's both Peter and Norman fighting each other at this point. Yeah. We see that his yellow eyelids are up, so you can actually see it's Norman's eyes there. It's not the yellow eyes of the goblin shield yeah. or the mask. It's actually Norman's eyes as he makes that, that threat to Mary Jane. Yeah. Well, interesting, too, that Norman has the absolute guts to call out Peter for his selfishness. You know, if he had not been so selfish, your little girlfriend's death would have been quick and painless. Norman is selfishness incarnate, <laughs> mm-hmm. but this is what he sees as selfishness. You know, Peter wants to have it all, in a sense. Peter will soon realize he can't. That's you know, the ending of the movie. He realizes he can't. But in that struggle to, you know, what Norman sees as Peter trying to have it all, Peter's just trying to help as many people as he can. Mm-hmm. In Norman's eyes, somehow that equates to selfishness. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. But you're right. He does call him out on that. And then, uh, you know, Norman's little spiel there about uh, going off and harming Mary Jane is just enough for Peter to get a heroic second wind. Yeah. Which, on the one hand, is inspired by after Gwen Stacy's killed in the comics. Mm-hmm. Peter beats the ever-living daylights out of the goblin. He finds the strength to just clobber him to near to death. Um, and also, in a sense, is another sort of refutation of the goblin's ideology of, you know, being only for yourself. Why care about others? In this moment, it's his care for MJ that gives him the strength to find that reserve of energy and fight back. MJ's been, you know, a constant source of inspiration from every step of the way through this movie, from his inception to him going to that wrestling arena, and finally in his final confrontation against the Goblin. And that's that's an inner strength that Norman would never understand. The power that comes from caring for others and trying to do the best you can for the sake of others absolutely absolutely and so peter is able to finally muster up the strength to fight back against the goblin and he seems to gain the upper hand he's his finally he's landing some blows he's really really giving it all he's got to to the green goblin there and he's able to kind of turn the tide and now it's the goblin who's on the defensive and he pulls down a whole brick wall that crushes 
the Green Goblin, and we see him, his hand kind of emerge like a zombie rising out of the grave. You're very evil dead. Exactly, exactly. And Peter is finally about to finish him off with that one final knockout punch to the face, and the Green Goblin decides to change tactics and, tr- and go for a bit more of a psychological touch. He takes his mask off and begins to say, stop, stop, it's me, it's Mr. Osborne. Like, please, don't, don't hurt me anymore. Like, uh, it's me, it's your, it's your father figure. <laughs> and Peter is understandably stunned by this, and he, he finally realizes yeah. everything. You can see, like, his jaw dropping as he suddenly puts it all together and says, like, well, Mr. Osborne, how could you do this? You, you killed those people at the, at the fair. Like how, like, how? And like you said, Norman does not take responsibility here, and he tries to brush it off as, oh, it was the goblin. He did it. I had nothing to do with it. Don't let him take me. Please help me. Mm-hmm. I'm the victim here. I believe to a certain extent he did want to put the blame on the goblin just to keep his own conscience clean and his own hands clean, which the goblin seems to reinforce by saying, I'm here to do what you can't, to, to say the things mm-hmm. you won't. Mm-hmm. So he seems to like that. But but by this moment, it's abundantly clear, if it wasn't clear already, which it was, that maybe this is a part of him he doesn't like, but he's actively letting it go because he's got his finger on the button, mm-hmm. ready to fire that glider at the first opportunity he gets, if he doesn't hear right, the be- right thing from Peter. Because this was all just a delay tactic. In addition to the psychological manipulation, he was just trying to buy time to get his glider in there so he could impale Peter and kill him that way. But then finally, he, he says to Spider-Man and Peter, he says, I've been a father to you. Be a son to me now. And Peter finally sorts out this battle within himself, at least for the time being, this battle over who is his father, his father figure, and proudly says after everything that I had a father, his name was Ben Parker. And of course, the goblin is a little bit uh, offended by this. So, so then he just says, fine, you know, Godspeed, I'm going to kill you now. <laughs> and presses the button to have his glider come forth and sprint towards Spider-Man with its uh, prongs extended, or with its bayonet extended, I should say. And I don't think he knew about Spider-Man's spider sense because mm. he seems to be surprised that Spider-Man's reflexes allowed him to get out of the way in time. Yeah. The cunning warrior probably could have done a little bit better to uh, study Peter's abilities a little bit more first. Exactly. Because he seems to be surprised by his little blunt reaction of, oh, oh. <laughs> Like, oh, crap. Well, uh, I didn't think this one through. <laughs> and it's he himself who is pinned against the wall there in an evidently fatal blow. I really don't know what his plan was, though. Like, so so the glider hits Peter. I mean, isn't Peter's body in the glider also just going to ram into him? I guess maybe he thought that he would have enough time to get out of the way so that it would be Peter that, that is uh, pinned to the wall instead of him. I don't know. Maybe. Like tactically, that might have been a bit of a of a blunder, but certainly, <laughs> I think I think he figured that Peter would stop the glider before it got to him. I, I'll bet you he wasn't expecting Probably. it on also hitting him. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Sure. Sure. And so, his one final request, his last request before he dies, is that Peter does not tell Harry about everything. I guess most importantly, that don't tell Harry that I was the goblin. But I guess also just about all of the goblin stuff about everything. And I wonder why. I kind of wonder why. I don't know, but... Uh, if I may uh, wax poetically for a moment, I'm just... Oh, uh, sure, sure. And so do the proud men die, crucified, not on a cross of gold, but on a stake of humble tin. Hmm. That's, that's the text. Uh, that's the narration from when this moment happens in the comics. Huh. Interesting. Amazing Spider-Man number 122. Yeah, Jerry Conway, uh, the writer on that issue. Huh. You know, again, like I said, with the religious imagery, which is pretty fitting here for all the you know religious imagery and 
allusions that the goblin has made throughout this story. Absolutely. Uh, you know, when you, when you look at the scene of where Peter is laying Norman's body on the couch or the bed in the mansion there, it kind of reminds me almost of one of the stations of the cross, which is where they lay uh, Jesus's body in the tomb there. So I just, yep. I, don't, I don't know if there's anything really more, anything to that, but just kind of an interesting, interesting bit of imagery. Yeah. Please continue. I just wanted to chime in with that. Oh, so let's see. So the goblin is dead. Peter has brought him back to the Osborne mansion. Um, Harry walks in on this very uh, distressing scene, but the, the time of night and the room is dark. He can't tell that it's Peter Parker in that, in that Spider-Man costume, mm-hmm. but he knows that it's Spider-Man. And Harry demands, what have you done? He pulls a gun on him, but by the time he can get the gun out of the drawer, Spider-Man is long gone. Next thing we know, it's the day of Norman's funeral, and we're at the cemetery. And Peter and Harry, interestingly, you know, in addition to the other things they had in common as being outsiders, now they have this thing in common of that they both lost their fathers through a very violent, tragic sort of uh, event. Hmm. Using this as a basis, Peter tries to console Harry and, you know, let him know that I know what it's like to lose a father. But Harry says, I didn't lose him. He was stolen from me. Mm-hmm. I swear on my father's grave, Spider-Man will pay. And so he swears vengeance against Spider-Man, who he blames for murdering his father. And at this point, Harry doesn't know that his father is the goblin. For all he knows, his father was just an innocent victim of Spider-Man's murderous rage. I don't know. I don't think Harry knows why his father died. He just knows that his father is dead and Spider-Man is connected to it. And that's all he needs. That's all he needs to go on to set up two movies worth of uh, a quest for vengeance. It's just a complete coincidence that all the Green Goblin attacks stopped right after his father died. Well, I was about to say, too, like, realistically, if you found a body like that, it would be definitely investigated by the police and by the coroner to try to determine what, you know, what the cause of death was. And certainly, I feel like it would have been in the news that there was a showdown. Well, I have to wonder if maybe they paid it off or something, you know? I mean, because Bernard obviously knows, as we find out later. True. You know, I mean, he cleaned the wound. Maybe he arranged it so that there wasn't an investigation or somehow paid somebody off. So that this didn't leak into the media. That, that, that's possible. You know, out of his love for the Osborne family. Well, it's possible because, you, you know, that he was a hardworking businessman. And it's not unknown for hardworking businessmen to die young of stress, heart attacks. At the same time, though, I'm sure I'm sure Harry would have gladly leaked to the media that Spider-Man killed his father and he wants him dead. Yeah. Maybe the details were kept quiet, but uh, I'm sure yes. probably it's common knowledge that Spider-Man killed Norman Osborn. Exactly. And we don't know all of those connections, but certainly it's, you're right. I feel like somebody would have had to notice that after Norman Osborn's death, all of these Green Goblin incidents suddenly stop. <laughs> I feel like in real life, again, it would have been discovered much earlier that Norman was clearly behind the heist of the glider in the flight suit from Oscorp and that he was the one responsible for the murder of the people at the Unity Day Festival. Yeah, we really don't see anybody like investigating what? this rash of murders. That's what I'm saying, because if you think about it, it's like a multi-billion dollar military contractor with top secret hardware under development, top secret weaponry, very dangerous weaponry. You think that somebody would have looked a little bit more into why, like, how did it get stolen? Like, we have that woman who rushes into the Osborne mansion and tells him Dr. Strom's been murdered and mm-hmm. our glider and, and flight suit have been stolen. Mm-hmm. But that's all we hear about it. Like, there would have been somebody that would have made the connection that the board members recently voted to fire Norman Osborne. The board members are now dead. The flight suit and glider had been stolen. Norman would have had access to them as the you know one of the lead scientists on the project. It's it's not at all unreasonable to think that Norman Osborne is involved in this somehow. So I feel like he would have been he would have come under suspicion anyway. Yeah, I mean, what do they think it was a coincidence? So many good things all happening for him. 
<laughs> to you, all for you, your greatest creation. Fair point, fair point. But again, that's probably why the police need Spidey out there. That's true. They, they, they're they not quite New York's finest in this universe. Apparently not. It took him, what, how many years to figure out who uh, murdered Uncle Ben? <laughs> exactly. So, um, so that brings us to the end of the movie. Yes, I was going to say. So that's the last we see of him in the first movie. And uh, there's just an interesting visual bit that happens after Norman's died. We see Norman crucified in a sense, and then we cut back to Peter watching him, and just this image of the mask like floats up through the screen and dissipates. Hmm. Now, you know, it could be just a flare that Raimi has, uh, something he wanted to do. I don't know. To me, you know, in my subjective interpretation of this piece of art, and this might go along something with like the devilish motif of it all, but it almost seems like some sort of like an exorcism kind of thing to me. Interesting. You know, the mask of the goblin has been freed, has been let go, you know, released from this. Only for it to be released and set upon a new host uh, who turns out to be Harry Osborn, who picks up where his father left off. Yeah, yeah. As we see in the next couple movies, yeah. So Norman, uh, not quite finished yet. And now talking about the connection between Norman Osborn and Harry Osborn and... um this legacy, the legacy of the goblin, you know, as we know, like you said, the specter of Norman, it hangs over the whole series and, you know, especially Harry and Harry will ultimately take up the mantle at some point. But interestingly enough, like the final confrontation between Peter and Norman, Norman says, you know, uh, thank God for you, you know, give me your hand. And then just, just very shortly later, Harry sort of echoes that when he says, you know, thank God for you, Peter, you're the only family I have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, absolutely. An interesting sort of, like, verbal connection between the two, the thank God for you phrase, sort of reinforcing the one has now passed on to the other. Huh. And, that... uh, you know, we all know as an audience, there's going to be a reckoning at Ab- some point. Absolutely there is. <laughs> um, well, so well, it's interesting because in the second movie, Harry, when he's having this hallucination of his father... He sees his father in the mirror and they're having this conversation or this Mm -hmm. imagined conversation. He angrily throws a knife at the mirror, smashes it. And then he sees that there's this secret room in the house there with all of this goblin equipment, you know, with vials and vials and vials of the human performance enhancer serum. Mm -hmm. And Harry is just discovering this for the first time. So evidently, at some point, Norman turned this room in his house into a goblin lair with all of this technology. Yeah. All of this. He's got a well-stocked arsenal. He does. He does. A lot of bombs, gliders, everything's in there. Again, more vials of the you know enhancer serum. I mean, maybe you have to take that serum every so often to keep the effects of it. I don't know. I don't they don't know. really tell you that, but why else would he have all of these vials of it? I don't know. Unless he intended to create more goblins? I mean, you know, he don't... is concerned with, you know, his legacy and his heirs. Perhaps he was preparing something for the future, for future goblins. Could be. He was grooming an heir, maybe. I don't yeah. know. Maybe he intended after killing Spider-Man to find a new apprentice. I don't know. Certainly wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. Yeah. But you figure he had to keep that stuff somewhere, so it makes sense that, uh, you know, like, where was the goblin glider the whole time in his suit? You know, you gotta put that somewhere. You can't just leave that out in the open. That's gonna be a little suspicious. There it was. It was in a secret room in his house. Well, it makes sense. So anyway, as, as we said, the specter of Norman looms large, and Harry goes on his missions in Spider-Man 2 and 3, largely motivated by this desire to live up to his deceased father. Um... Again, his presence looms large. It motivates other characters in the subsequent movies to act in a number of ways. Yeah, so arguably the arch-villain of the entire saga. Exactly. The confrontation between Spider-Man and Goblin is the, is the pivotal showdown of the entire trilogy. 
and that's why we've spent so much time talking about them. It's just too, so important to understanding these movies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, in other words, great choice for the Absolutely. first villain. I, I, I don't think they could have done it any better. There's just a lot you can say about the Green Goblin. And again, that's why I think he's such a great choice for the villain in the first movie. Because let's face it, the first movie kind of sets everything up. And this choice of villain just was the perfect setup for the whole series. Because his shadow, his specter, his ghost, his spirit is undeniably there in both the second and third movies. And... The conclusion of the third movie rests in large part on untangling this knot of all of these different feelings that everybody has about Norman Osborn. Hmm. The other movies just can't happen without this component of Norman Osborn. They just can't. Yeah, he's you're right. He's a fascinating character, complex character, uh, comic booky as all get out, but uh, very interesting. And uh, you know, forty thousand years of discussion, and we've barely even tapped the vastness of Norman Osborn analysis. Exactly. <laughs> And everything he says is so darn quotable. I mean, come on. <laughs> can't deny that either. Back to formula? Delivered. I can't, I can't imagine anyone doing a better job than Willem Dafoe. I mean, no, perfectly. I, 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 yeah, I think that was the perfect choice in casting there. I mean, he, he does a brilliant job, definitely. I know Willem Dafoe has mentioned, too, he sort of credits his experience in theater with sort of like the ability to, to portray acting in a very physical way. Yeah, because he said in theater, you're not exactly necessarily bound by, like, realistic body movements. You know, things yeah. are a little bit more exaggerated on the stage. And, and you know, he, he let some of that come through with the Goblin. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you know, time and again, I've heard people praise him for just his commitment to the physicality of the part. Because you figure, when he's in that suit, it could be anybody. But any time that he could do it, any time that they, like would let him do it instead of a stuntman. He wanted to be the person in that suit. He wanted hmm. to be the person on that glider. Even when they were doing shots that didn't need him to be there, they could have gotten a double because maybe they're just doing his hand. Maybe they're just doing his arm. His face isn't even there. So some actors might allow someone else to do it. He wanted to do those because he wanted every movement to be purely goblin. Hmm. So credit to Willem Dafoe, absolutely. I, I agree 100%. Huge part, along with the writing and direction, in, well, in every other aspect of this of the production, you know, the design, uh, the score, you know, everything came together for such an unforgettable villain. No, I agree 100%. I think we've said a lot. I mean, there's so much more we could say, but you know, I'm sure everybody out there has a lot of interesting things to say about the Green Goblin and these different aspects of his character and the background of his development, his rise, his alter ego, Norman Osborn, what propels him forward, what makes him do the things he does, what makes him do these things at Oscorp. I mean, there's just so many things you could talk about. And we, as, as we've said, we've barely even scratched the surface. I mean, there's just so much. But that's what makes these movies so great and that we can yeah. just talk for hours and hours about these things. We could talk for hours and hours, but at some point, some sadistic lunatic is going to come along and force you to make a decision where no matter what you do, the outcome is a brief and humorously nonsensical discussion. And I am that lunatic right now, and I am forcing you to make that decision. What's it going to be, Sean Merritt? Would you rather have a pack of ravening wolves snarling after your trust fund, or have all your promises come in the form of crackers? We are who we choose to be. Now choose, Sean. Hmm. Promises were crackers. My daughter would be fat. 
Mr. Ditkovich. So basically, it's a question of like, would I rather be rich but have somebody you know go after my money, or would I rather be you know good natured but poor and unable to follow through on my promises to pay people? You know what, Sean? I don't think so. I think I literally mean if you make a promise to someone, it means you have to give them a cracker. I'm, I, that's what I mean here. You're okay, when you're you make a, a pro- when someone makes you a promise, they've made you a cracker. You're being very <laughs> literal with it. I'm being exceedingly surreally literal. I mean, honestly, I got I got to pick I got to go with the Osborns again and pick the trust fund because really? like the way yeah because you know what I I kind of I want the money. You know, I'm, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, but you've got a pack of ravening wolves snarling after it. Oh, okay. So we're being literal with that too, that like it is actual wolves, like from yes. the wilderness that are yes. snarling and, you know, have foam coming out of their mouths. They are hungry for my money for some You're reason. You're painting an accurate picture. I am being exceedingly, uh, uh, nonsensically literal. Yeah. Okay, I'm in that case definitely the crackers because I am not, okay, I, I, no, snarling dogs, no thanks. That's no amount of money is worth that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, okay, Peter. Now here's your sadistic choice. All right. Would you rather be a guest at the Thanksgiving dinner at Peter and Harry's apartment and have to sit through all of the awkward conversation? <laughs> or would you rather be an attendee at the Oscorp board meeting, perhaps one of the board members or one of their assistants or somebody else there, and again, have to sit through the incredibly tense and awkward moments? Ah, uh, geez. Do I have to be a board member? You, no, you can be like an assistant. You could be a okay. secretary. Maybe but... I'm an assistant. Yeah, maybe I'm a secretary. Okay, so I I might I might avoid incurring his wrath. You're not on Norman's side per se. You're not like you're not Norman's assistant. You're one of the board members' assistants, and so Norman might very well see you as you know guilty by association. Oh, I see. Yeah, so right there in the thick of it. So, jeez. Uh, yeah. Uh, you can't just be a neutral fly on the wall for that meeting. Well, I mean, I know what happens to those board members. And I don't, well, to be fair, we know what happens to a couple of them. We don't know if all of them are murdered. I mean, it seems like they imply that, but they don't that act. That's fair. That's a fair point. In any case, it's a, it's a precarious position to be in, as is the, uh, the Thanksgiving meal. It is pretty tense. They're both yeah, pretty tense. However. Yeah, you got to sit there and be a party to all of the, all of the awkwardness. And also at that meeting, as we know, Norman finds out that Peter's Spider-Man there and he marks Mary Jane and Aunt May to get to his heart. That's true. And once again, if I'm there, I'm I'm guilty that's by association I mean. again. Yep, that's what oh, I mean. Man. So that, that's basically the choice. Like if you're <laughs> no matter which one you're you're at, Norman has his uh target set on you. So Dang. Yeah. This game is just making us very <laughs> I mean, we're we're getting a little too in too into character here. We're getting pretty sadistic about these questions but here. It's kind of fun though. I mean, I hate to say it, but that's the fun. It's like coming up with these very awful situations where you know, no matter what you pick, you're it's a you're, you're trying to pick the lesser of two evils. I guess but that's the fun. Yeah, yeah. I guess Norman Norman knew how to have fun. Um, well, you know what? I think at the end of the day, the food at the apartment looked pretty good. Uh, I think Aunt May really knows how to put together. But I will say, I will say, I know, I think I know what you're going to say, and I just wanted to point out, though, that if you choose the board meeting, there might be safety in numbers there because your chances of blending into the crowd are a little bit better if you pick the board meeting. <sighs> you're right. Maybe I was, like, getting cotton candy at the Uni Day Festival or something, and uh, I wasn't on the balcony. But, but then again, you, you, we don't know. Well, I mean, I think, I think, it, you know, both situations are pretty precarious i think i just have to go with the one that 
I mean, I, at least I get the food. I mean, that that's, seems that's pretty fair. shallow, but like... No, that I love Thanksgiving dinner. Norman so. Rockwell-esque. It looks pretty good. Yeah. I think I can imagine me sitting there, and then everyone, all the awkwardness happens. Yeah. The Osborne storm away. MJ storms away. I'm just sitting there like, well, let's eat. <laughs> So I think I think that's when it's gonna be. No, okay. I I think. All that's... Right, what would you do? Is, is that? It sounds like you would go with the uh, be at the board meeting. I don't know. That's a tough choice. I mean, because I mean, Thanksgiving dinner is almost always an awkward thing, no matter where you go, even if you're not dealing with a sadistic lunatic. But it would be very tough to be in that meeting because I mean, Norman gets very emotional, and I would have a. I, I, but then again, if I were on the board. I might try to be that guy who like does the 12 angry men thing and say, you know what, maybe we're being a bit too hasty here. Maybe we should reconsider if we have to, you know, merge about these terms of the merger with Quest Aerospace. Like maybe I could try to curry Norman's favor standing up for him at the board meeting. But then again, like, so even if I'm outvoted, would I still be targeted by him? I don't Interesting. know. I don't know. I mean, Norman seems to care a lot about loyalty. So maybe if you stood by him, who knows? Maybe you'd be the little goblin junior. I guess I'd have to pick the board meeting because I'm sorry, but like there's few things more. I feel like awkwardness is awkwardness, but I feel like it's even worse if it's like with your family and friends at Thanksgiving dinner than it is like at work. Hmm. So I feel like at least at work, you don't really know any of them that well and you don't have to go home with them. And it's like you can kind of write it off as, oh, that's just work. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I feel a little shallow, but like if I could die in either situation, the the Thanksgiving meal looks pretty good. What can I say? I'm... I totally understand like a home-cooked Thanksgiving meal. That sounds uh, pretty good. I mean, Aunt May knows what she's doing. She says very sternly that we are going to do things properly. And I assume that inc- that means that the meal with all the fixings is pretty darn good. I would think so. Man, I'm hungry now. That's probably the most sadistic part of this. Now I'm just sitting here hungry. Well, we're at the end of the episode now, so that's good. I can go grab something to eat. Yeah, yeah, same here. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for these observations from the Oscorp Oracle. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Please feel free to swing on by Twitter at SMTT Podcast, as in So Much to Tell Podcast. But until next time, Godspeed, Spider fans. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, yeah that, that's fun. I like coming up with these questions.